Hi everyone and welcome to Narratives of Purpose podcast, a place where we discuss how ordinary people are making extraordinary social impact. My name is Claire Marie Gandhi and I am your host on this show. On today's episode, my guest is Emilie Alirol. Emilie is Associate Director at the Medicines for Malaria Venture based out in Geneva. Today we will speak about clinical science, antimicrobial research, and neglected tropical diseases. As you can see, it's a healthcare-related conversation, and I'm very excited to share this discussion with you. Hi, Emilie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. It's great to have you on the show. So first things first, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. The sun is up in the sky. It's a very nice day, so everything is all right. Great, perfect. Now let me start with a few words of introduction on your background. So you are a biologist. You studied at the University of Geneva. You hold a PhD in cell biology. You also have a master in a master of science in epidemiology from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. You started your career after a PhD in clinical research at the University Hospital of Geneva, and you also worked at Doctors Without Border, or Médecins Sans Frontières in French. Then you joined the GARDP, which stands for Global Antibiotics R&D Partnership, as project leader. You worked there for a few years until very recently, just a couple of months, that you have a new position as Associate Director at the Medicines for Malaria Venture. So we obviously know each other from our studies because I'm also a biologist. And I recall visiting you for a few days, I think it was in the summer of 2004, in the northern Italy in Padova where you were doing your PhD. And I have to say, I was really amazed and impressed by all the activities that you were doing and the hard work and dedication that uh, you were putting in your studies. I wanted to know what brought you to focus on HIV research, neglected tropical diseases from the very beginning of your career. So I guess the answer is to be found in my childhood. I had um, somehow a different childhood, although, you know, today maybe it's not that unusual uh, uh, for, for some people. But I was uh, born in France, but uh, very quickly I left France with my parents um, and went to live in several countries that are um, classified as low and middle income countries. So I spent part of my childhood in Peru in Senegal and in, in Nepal and very early in childhood I became aware that I was actually born in you know on the right side of the fence I was uh, pretty lucky to be born in a European family with good socioeconomic status and uh, living in those countries I quickly realized that a lot of people didn't have the same luck as uh, I had um, and this uh, notion that um, globally there are wide disparities among people, among, you know, 
children um, and, and, and other populations was something that accompanied me uh, since then. Um, it's true that um, uh, when I grew up and started my studies, I became very interested in um, life science. Um, I was, and I'm still is, I'm still um, fascinating, um, fascinated by life, uh, its multitude of forms, and in particular by uh, pathogens. Um, viruses, bacteria, and parasites are very simple forms of life, yet uh, they can um, bug down entire societies as we, we're currently experiencing with um, COVID-19. So I was fascinated by those uh, very simple forms of life and how you know they could affect uh, human beings um, and yield to um, diseases. Uh, it became quite obvious after, you know, during my studies, during my PhD, that I wanted uh, to find a job where I could contribute to improving the faith of populations in an LMICs, just to give back a little bit what I, I had the chance to receive. So, you know, for me, working on NTDs, on infectious diseases, on, on HIV, enabled me to, at the same time, satisfy that, that aim, that, that um, will I had to make a difference uh, for the most deprived uh, populations, but also it coincided, it fitted well with uh, my interest for, for pathogens. So that is where, you know, I started to look for opportunities um, in HIV, uh, in particular, and also other um, diseases that primarily affect neglected populations. That's really fascinating and really interesting. Can you just precise, you mentioned infectious diseases, HIV and NTDs. What are NTDs exactly? So neglected tropical diseases, NTDs, are a group of um, 17 diseases uh, that encompass um, a variety of um, pathogens. They um, are prevailing in tropical and subtropical areas, and their burden is huge. Um, according to the latest global of disease, uh, global burden of disease study, uh, about one billion people globally are affected by, by them. And uh, so they encompass um, diseases caused by viruses, by bacteria, um, and by parasites. And they are found, uh, you know, mostly in resource-poor settings. I have to ask you this. I've been intrigued, or I would say a bit wondering about the term neglected. Can you tell me why they're called neglected diseases? Well, historically, they were called neglected diseases because they were not the subject of great attention, uh, be it from the research community or from policymakers and people involved in, in setting priorities for health interventions. And they were oftentimes um, put um, at the very last position in the priority lists when investment in health was to be considered. So one of these diseases is Ebola. And while I was reading through your profile, um, I saw that you mentioned 
something about the outbreak that took place in 2014. You wrote that um, during this Ebola outbreak, you advised um, MSF, so Doctors Without Borders, on matters of research ethics and implementing clinical trials. How did you come to develop expertise in ethics? Well, um, as I uh, started my career in NTDs and HIV, um, I, as I mentioned before, my main drive was really to um, address unmet needs and address in particular uh, needs of neglected populations. Uh, that entailed working in settings where there were very few health infrastructures, very uh, limited resources, and that came with a number of challenges, in particular when it came to ensuring that research ethics was respected, that scientific uh, rigor was respected. So very early after I've had joined the Geneva University Hospital, I volunteered to become a member of an ethics committee. First, I joined the um, ethics committee of internal medicine at Geneva University Hospital. And then a couple of years later, I joined the WHO ethics research committee. And that committee oversees all the research that is supported or funded by WHO globally. And that is where I learned um, a lot about the key principles that have to be respected when conducting research in uh, vulnerable populations. So I stayed with the WHO ERC for about six years, including three as a vice chair. And um, this is where I gained you know, insight into, into research ethics. And that, that is what probably positioned me quite well at MSF uh, to advise on how to do research um, in Western Africa during uh, the 2014 Ebola epidemic. Wow, that's quite an impressive track record. I mean, being vice chair of the World Health Organization Ethics Research Committee, that's, that's really impressive. And you did earn your place as being an advisor to MSF during the Ebola outbreak. Now, let, let me just touch upon another point that I'd like to have your opinion on. I I also have a bit of background on ethics and uh, running trials, but my experience is more about running trials, I would say, in the Western countries or rather more in Europe. So from your experience, what is the fundamental difference or the fundamental differences, I would say, between running a trial in West Africa for Ebola and let's say, running a trial on osteoporosis in Switzerland. I know it's quite an extreme example, but just to, to have your take on that. There are a number of differences. The, the, the two that come to mind uh, are, are the following. The first is the vulnerability of the population. So oftentimes people affected by neglected tropical diseases or, or by diseases such as Ebola are much more vulnerable due to their uh, economic situation, but also they might not have the same education levels uh, as uh, populations um, in rich countries. And uh, that creates uh, the need to protect them even, even more from um, research misconduct in particular. So their ability to consent to studies, 
to understand the complexity of what is being investigated and um, their ability to make a truly informed decision to be part of a trial is something that needs to be really evaluated carefully. Uh, the other aspect that is uh, fundamentally different is that clinical trials conducted um, in Western countries often, I mean, up in, in, within a health system that is pretty strong uh, with, you know, good quality of care, access to uh, health insurance and the like. So patients that are, um, that participate in clinical trials um, also have an alternative that is, um, is a good alternative. If, if they don't want to be in the studies, well, they will still receive care, they will still have access to medicines and the like. In resource-poor settings, it's, it's much more difficult. And so there is um, also a risk when you conduct trials in such um, uh, situations that you actually create undue incentives for participation. So those are, are two aspects that are okay. fundamentally different. But there are many others. Yes, absolutely. Very insightful indeed. Um, now, moving a bit further into your career, I previously mentioned that you were part of the GARDP or GARDP. Um, what is the purpose of this organization? So GARDP is a joint initiative between WHO and um, DNDI, the Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative. It was created in 2016 and was uh, incubated for a couple of years by DNDI. Um, the initial idea behind GARDP is to create an organization that focuses on developing new treatments uh, for infections where antimicrobial resistance has become um, a serious concern. And GARDP is, uh, adopts a model that is similar to other product development partnerships, such as DNDI and NMV. Um, this model um, is based on very strong partnership with pharmaceutical companies, uh, but also uh, public actors, so NGOs, academic organizations, and other international organizations. Um, the idea is to... Um, leverage public funding to be able to develop treatments for indications that are traditionally not commercially uh, interesting for, for private uh, actors. And so GARDP uh, has partnered with um, several pharmaceutical companies, uh, mainly small biotech companies, to be able to develop new antibiotics where you know the the need is is arising due to uh, drug resistance and what was your role exactly as project leader i was leading the uh, sexually transmitted infections uh, programs uh, which is a program focusing on drug resistant gonorrhea um, we had uh, one um, new chemical entity uh, that was the primary focus of the of the program which we developed uh, in partnership with Entasis Therapeutics. It was a very, and it is still a very promising drug candidate, um, but the SDI program also looked at other um, antibiotics that could be either repurposed or 
further developed with the idea that um, STIs in the community are uh, treated syndromically. Um, they are treated uh, oftentimes without knowing what pathogen is causing them. So it was a very, very interesting and very um, much needed program because gonorrhea uh, is, is really um, nowadays causing a lot of concerns in terms of drug resistance. And the current treatment uh, is, is going to become, you know, um, uh, useless in, in a few years' time. So you just mentioned uh, drug resistance uh, becoming increasingly uh, a major concern. And it's true that this is something that, at least for now, in terms of awareness, is not really uh, front and center. I mean, not everybody is really aware of that. But as you said, it's going to be really uh, increasingly an issue globally. So this is really real. What's what's happening there? Yeah, it is real. And um, I mean, AMR affects all countries globally, but definitely the impact on poor population is, is greatest. And there's been a lot of research around, you know, um, how AMR actually contributes also to, to poverty in, the, in those diseases. Uh, in in um, in, the, in in the countries that that are affected, um, it is true that we don't we don't talk much about AMR, although it has come up in the um, global health agenda over the last few years. Um, it is indeed a, a very very difficult problem to tackle because we do we still have you know antibiotics that work. Thanks God. Uh, the main issue is that the market for antibiotics is completely broken. It's dominated by, by generics, uh, so um, antibiotics are oftentimes very cheap. Um, antibiotics are used for uh, a number of indications, so volumes of sales are very, very high. And so for any new drug entering the market, it is, it is very, very difficult to compete with those uh, existing products. And the reality is that as AMR is progressing um, steeply and, and constantly, there's a need to find new treatments if we want to anticipate the situation where you know, the current tools won't work. And as you, as you know, developing new drugs takes a lot of time. And, and now that we are all facing this pandemic, you know, with COVID-19, do you think that the fact that the focus right now is, is on this specific virus, that this will either increase awareness about all these um, infectious diseases, as you mentioned before, you know, parasites, um, bacteria, viruses, and so on, to a much broader extent, or on the opposite, this might actually push back these other diseases which are still present in terms of awareness. It is definitely true that what is happening with COVID uh, has a lot of similarities with what could happen if AMR, you know, progressed. And, uh, and, and we, we see that, you know, already in, in some instances, um, there are infections that can no longer be treated. Uh, if you think about neonatal sepsis, for instance, in, in, in some countries, um, a, a very large proportion of the infections 
have become resistant to the first line antibiotics. So the, the, the reality is very similar. The, this um, um, untreatable disease notion is, is clearly, you know, something that, uh, that we're experiencing with COVID, but is certainly true for some uh, bacterial infections. Uh, the, the, so there's a point to be made, and there's a parallel to be made. However, the ability of, um, you know, um, public and private investors and funders to invest in AMR uh, is, is really a question mark today. There's an enormous amount of funding that is now um, uh, focusing on COVID and addressing uh, the pandemic. You probably learned about the ACT accelerator. And I believe um, the WHO estimated that $38 billion will be necessary to fund the ACT accelerator. All that money may be, you know, um, diverge from other um, health uh, problems, including AMR. I also think that countries will have to address the economic crisis that will follow the COVID pandemic. And the amount of, of funds that will be available for AMR research in the future will also depend on, on countries' ability um, to, to first tackle the economic consequences of, of the pandemic. All right, let me just pause here and rewind a little bit. You mentioned two terms. I just want to make sure that our listeners fully understand what those were. So you spoke about neonatal sepsis. Can you just explain exactly what that is, what condition that is? And then you talked about this ACT. Please expand a bit on that. Neonatal sepsis is a, a condition that affects uh, neonates in their very first days and, and weeks of life. It can be caused by a variety of pathogens, a variety of bacteria, and some of those uh, bacteria, such as Acetinobacter baumani, have become resistant to most antibiotics uh, used so far. And there are studies in, in, in India and other uh, LMICs that show that um, um, the current first-line antibiotics um, that are recommended uh, by WHO are no longer working and that the, the, the bacteria are resistant to those um, antibiotics. Uh, it is believed that neonatal sepsis now is one of the prime contributors to neonatal mo uh, mortality and that in order to be able to achieve significant improvement in neonatal mortality, uh, neonatal sepsis has to be tackled and new treatments have to be to be found. Now, the ACT Accelerator is a global initiative that um, aims at uh, developing tools to address uh, COVID pandemic. There are three uh, components. One is on vaccine, another one is on um, diagnostics, and the last is on treatment. A number of countries have recently announced that they would contribute to uh, the ACT accelerator uh, and fund um, part of the of the research and development activities that need to take place for for um, to find this these new tools. Uh, however, um, I, I just read um, yesterday that we are very far from the commitment that is uh, that is expected. I mean, uh, 38 
billion is is certainly a very very high figure. Yes, absolutely. Thirty eight billion is quite a high figure indeed, I agree. You just addressed vaccines there and I'd like to jump on the opportunity that you're currently working at Medicines for Malaria Venture and ask you this. I was reading about a project last year, a clinical trial, which is run right now in three African countries, namely Ghana, Kenya and Malawi. And it's a pilot project on a malaria vaccine and it's a trial run in children up to age two years old. So do you know about this project and can you tell me how it's been going on so far? It's not my primary area of expertise, but from what I know, uh, the, the existing vaccines uh, focus on Plasmodium falciparum um, and not the other um, species that can also cause malaria. Those vaccines have been tested extensively in Africa, in particular among children, and they have received uh, marketing authorization. However, the protection that they, they achieve is not is not uh, very, very, very high. So control of malaria and elimination of malaria cannot rely exclusively on, on, on those tools. Um, and definitely uh, other approaches mm -hmm. have to be um, followed, including, um, you know, um, use of bed nets and, and prevention, prevention of infections through bed nets and spraying, uh, but also um, treatment of dormant uh, forms of malaria, and in particular those caused by Plasmodium vivax. So you're sharing a lot of valuable insights here, and I'm really learning a lot. Thank you so much for that, Emily. Now, looking forward, in terms of uh, public health and the future of public health, how do you see this area evolving from, from your perspective, from your expertise, which is more research-based? I believe, you know, those um, tools that are uh, developed by the private sectors do not entirely address the, the medical needs of our societies. Um, the uh, R&D efforts uh, driven by pharmaceutical companies has largely focused on diseases that uh, could bring some return on investment. But we see today, and that is not only the reality in LMICs, but it has become the reality also in rich countries with AMR and, and COVID, there's a need for other actors to step in and to develop these new tools. Definitely, um, in my opinion, treatments, diagnostics and vaccines should be considered common goods. And there's an urgent need to reset the whole system and how, you know, we as, as societies um, develop the innovations that are required for everyone to have access to, to care, to proper care. So um, the um, organizations such as MMV, such as GARDP, DNDI and FIND have really demonstrated that it is possible to develop uh, new medicines, new diagnostics that address those, those medical needs. And I do believe that the future is really in, in those type of, of entities that address needs that may have not, you know, been addressed by, by private um, companies. 
So do you see more and more collaboration taking place between the pharmaceutical companies, basically the private sector and these entities that you just mentioned? I hope that, you know, um, funding um, is going gonna, is gonna to increase for those entities because uh, you, you know that developing new treatments and new diagnostics is a, extremely costly. Um, clinical trials are not cheap. Um, and uh, so the investments that are required uh, to develop those new tools are significant. And without proper funding by philanthropic organizations or by public um, money is, is really in, um, uh, required. I fully agree with you. Funding is really key and moving forward, it will continue to be key as well. Uh, still looking forward now, what would be your advice to young people who say, you know, I'm really eager to pursue a career in life science and more specifically in clinical research? From your standpoint, what would you advise them? I believe that uh, people who have an interest in clinical research or in public health uh, very early on should pursue that interest. It's very rewarding. Um, from my perspective, and I can only talk about myself, what is absolutely key is to um, be able to stick to my values. Uh, and that is what actually I enjoy in my, in my work, is that I've always put, you know, um, patience and unmet medical need at the center of my professional choices. Um, as an individual, it matters a lot for me to um, uh, do something every day in my life that can actually uh, contribute to a greater, a greater benefit. And my advice to young people is really to um, um, never lose sight of their values and what is their driver, because this is this is where you you achieve you know the best. This is where you you develop what 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 is um, uh, the the most important, in my opinion. Well, I have to say, those are really wise words and great pieces of advice. Thank you. We are unfortunately reaching to the end of our conversation. But before we part, I would like to ask you a few short questions, a bit more personal, not necessarily related to what you're doing right now. And uh, you can choose, basically, between either book or music. So let's get started. First question, what are you listening to nonstop these days? Or what is the book that you are reading right now? I'm listening to Melody Gardot, um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. That's a, a very old song that was um, written in the 30s. Um, um, and uh, Melody Gardot's interpretation is really, is really nice. So, yeah. All right, second question. Do you have a song, an artist or a band that particularly resonated with you at a specific time in your life? When I was doing my PhD and, and, and when I was studying in Padova in, in northern Italy, um, I, I listened a lot to Radiohead. That's uh, one of my uh, favorite bands. And um, if I if I look back to these years, you know, studying at university, um, we're really are really associated with the Radiohead. 
Third and final question. What is your all-time favorite album or book you absolutely recommend? My all-time favorite book is um, from Nicolas Bouvier. It's uh, L'Usage du Monde. It's, um, it's a wonderful book. It's uh, actually that book that gave me um, the, the flavor for, for travels and, and for um, meeting people in, in different places with different cultures and uh, different ways of looking at the world. I have to say it is a great book. I read it twice, so it's also one of my favorites. I will make sure that all this information is available on the podcast page so that listeners can go back and check the book and the music that you just um, told us about. Emily, thank you so very much for taking the time to discuss with me today. It has been a great pleasure catching up with you after such a long time. Final, final question before I let you go. What can I wish you for the future? Well, um, I guess uh, to be able to always uh, be present um, 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 to, for others and for myself. Um, if, you know, I'm getting older and turning um, the 40 years old crisis uh, milestone. <laughs> um, Pay attention to the moment that you are presently living. Pay attention to the people around uh, you and not be, um, you know, dragged into either your past or your future. So, yeah. <laughs> well, then I wish you to be more present in the future. Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much, Claire. Episode 2, A Conversation with Emily Aliron. Emily is truly a great person, open and generous, an inspiring professional attached to her core values. Thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to the episode. I really appreciate you taking the time. You'll find all relevant information on this episode on the podcast page. Here is a reference. Narratives-of-purpose dot podcastpage.io Until the next episode, take care of yourselves, stay well, and stay inspired.